Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is, of course, the home of common sense. And this morning, we will be searching far and wide for as much of it as possible. In these trying times, it is often supplied by you when you let us know what you know and what you're seeing out there. We're still hearing tales of queues for petrol stations, but surely that will come to an end soon. The eco-warriors are out in force. Uh, Somebody's dumped three tonnes of mushroom compost all over Jeremy Clarkson's nice new Range Rover, which is a pretty disgusting thing to do. Uh, We'll be talking about that. Uh, Now, of course, they're softening us up uh, for a rocky Christmas and a breakdown in the entire supply chain, not just of food, not just of petrol, but of absolutely everything. How much more of this are we supposed to be taking? Apparently, it's all because of a hangover from COVID. Unions are now saying they need to do away with all the COVID restrictions because those are the reasons why we can't get anything done. We can't get anything organised. We can't get anything moved. We can't get anything shifted. We can't get anything delivered. Really? Is it really that bad? I need to hear from you. This morning, we're checking in with Brendan Chilton from the Independent Business Network with his take on the week so far. The demos, the fuel fools, the Labour Party conference, and of course, Keir Starmer's marathon 90-minute speech yesterday in Brighton. Could it have been any more dull? 0344 499 Also coming up, we'll be bringing you the sentencing of Wayne Cousins, the police officer who brutally murdered Sarah Everard after arresting her and driving her 80 miles to her death last March. Sarah's family and anti-violence campaigners are hoping he will be handed a whole life tariff and will never be released, and I'm rather hoping for that as well. But there are serious questions to be asked about how he was allowed to continue working as a police officer after several incidents that should have led to his dismissal, if not his prosecution. And Whittacombe going to be here as well with the news that Dominic Raab wants to use prisoners to fill vacancies in the economy. How do you fancy working next to a criminal? The furlough ends today of course as well so if you have been on furlough since last March we need to hear from you because you better go back to work tomorrow or maybe you're going to lose your job. Tell us what's happening, tell us what your employer is telling you uh, and let us try and get to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Helen Dale is here as well. Helen and Nicklin too because it's Thursday, time for the Thursday Club. 0344 499 1000. Are you ready for this? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, the home of common sense. It's Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Now, I think yesterday was sort of peak excitement, if you remember the Labour Party. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer got up and made his little speech. Uh, it wasn't so much a little speech, it's a rather long and turgidly boring speech. And we're going to talk now to Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Brendan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. It's good to be with you this morning. Yes, indeed. Lot to talk about, really. Uh, let's kick off, first of all, with the Labour Party. Um, where do they go now? Because um, it was a very odd day yesterday, really. A lot of people heckling uh, their own leader, seemingly from the left, seemingly from parts of the Corbynista sort of movement. Um, I don't think he came up with anything that was at all inspiring. I don't think he said anything that, that would lead anyone who didn't vote Labour last time to vote Labour next time. So, you know, what's going on? I think, uh, first of all, that you, you are right to say the speech was very long. Um, I think that wasn't helped by the fact that there was heckling from the floor. Mm. But just on that for a moment, I actually think the heckling served to Starmer's advantage because it was a demonstration that the old regime, the Corbyn regime, is now being beaten and pushed back in the Labour Party and a more moderate Labour Party is emerging. Of course, there's still a long way to go before the party's in a position where it can challenge the government uh, to secure a majority of one, it needs to win 124 seats at the next general election, something which hasn't been achieved uh, by any party, uh, certainly for a very long time. Mm. In terms of the content of the speech, again, while it, it may not necessarily have been the most exciting and most stimulating speech uh, that we may remember from the days when uh, Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party, but certainly what it did do was demonstrate a break with the totally unelectable Corbyn regime. Mm. Um, there were things like appealing to business in there, where he spoke about the need to increase uh, GDP, 3% GDP investment, things such as science, technology and engineering, which is something we do need to do as a country. Uh, but I think in terms of the things of business rates too, uh, the, at the moment we know the high streets are struggling partly because of the unnecessary lockdowns that we've had, but to announce that the Labour Party would seek to replace business rates with a fairer system, we don't know what that system is, they need to outline that, but the fact that they've identified this as one of the key issues in our high streets uh, is encouraging, certainly for family businesses that we see in high streets. Is it a done deal? Has Labour uh, secured the next election? No, there is still a mountain to climb. But someone uh, representing family businesses in the UK, I'm pleased to see the party acknowledging uh, the important role they play in the life of our economy. Yes, I suppose that's true. But I mean, if you're working for the Labour Party and you're expected to go out and knock on a few doors and see if you can convince people to vote for you, um, what are you selling them exactly? Well, this is the, I think, the next stage of the Starmer leadership. They urgently now uh, need to outline what Britain will look like under a future Labour government. Um, we've only about 18 months, possibly even less, uh, before we go to a general election because the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act is being repealed, so it could come at any time. And the question Labour's got to ask itself now is, how do we translate those you know, words that we've had at conference, the debates that have taken place at conference, into an election-winning machine? And of course, the country at the moment is facing huge problems. We've got a fuel crisis, we've got shortages. Uh, not because of shortage of fuel we might just had. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the strangest fuel shortage of all time, isn't it? Because yes. technically speaking, there is no shortage of fuel, except there is. 
No, yeah, quite right. It's, it's a very British shortage. Um, <laughs> there isn't one. Um, but Labour have got to turn their attacking of the government now into alternative policies that can work. They've started to do that, but there's still a long way to go. And that mountain to climb of 124 seats to secure a majority of one, as, as they've now got to start climbing that very, very quickly. Yes, and I was listening to somebody last night saying that in order for Labour to win the next election, the swing is going to have to be the biggest ever, uh, I think, since the Second World War. So, I mean, it's quite a tough old mountain to climb. Is there a place in there for you, Brendan? Because people always say after you've been on this show, um, you know, what a sensible man. He's the sort of guy that the Labour Party needs at the helm. Um, are you still kind of in touch with the leadership of the Labour Party or not really? Uh, I'm, I am still a member of the Labour Party. Uh, my, I have no ambitions in that regard. But however, if called upon to make that ultimate sacrifice and serve the party in some capacity, <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll, be happy I'll to take, do. I'll yeah. take that. I'll take the rest of that as read then in that case. But um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the shortages because we're hearing this morning um, that there may well be more shortages on the way uh, because of COVID, effectively. Because an awful lot of what we've now discovered about HGV drivers, about the, the fuel shortage, about all sorts of supply chain problems an awful lot of it seems to be down to covid and we're being now told that ports container ships everything from sort of you know china to 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 dover uh, is in peril by and large not just because in this country there's a problem but in lots of other countries they're still operating uh, with social distancing they're still operating with skeleton staffs because people are working from home it's a shambles i mean they need to ch- sort this out don't they well, this is the, uh, the the great issue. You know, we are now returning largely to normal. Uh, however, the rest of the world haven't caught up with us yet. Uh, and this is down to our speedy vaccine rollout system that we had. OK, I, I was very critical of the various lockdowns we had, but now we are where we are. But we've got to remember, most of the things we have in this country are imported. Um, <clears throat> we know that the lorry drivers as well, uh, the, the whole industry has really come into the spotlight. Um, they've had a shortage of drivers because they haven't been able to train new recruits because of lockdown, uh, an ageing workforce which has now suddenly started shrinking because people are retiring, wages have gone up so those existing drivers are working less hours for the same amount of pay because the conditions are pretty awful, uh, sleeping on the side of roads, no washing facilities etc as we've seen in the various coverages that have happened uh, and of course uh, people have um, looked at this and as a result there are now shortages in our shops. Uh, some people have tried to blame this on Brexit. Some people have uh, such blame it only on Brexit. Uh, they're simply ignoring the fact that we've had a global pandemic uh, and simply ignoring the fact as well that there are huge shortages, not just in the UK, but across the whole of Europe and the Western world. Mm. And we've got to get to grips with this, obviously, because we've got Christmas coming up. And as our economy returns to normal, we can't be stifled by these delays. I don't think the government have covered themselves in glory. Uh, in this period it has sort of been left to individuals to sort it out for themselves mm. uh, we, are, we are told that the government are considering uh, deploying the military uh, in some cases but you know we've got a shortage of around 90,000 drivers and we've got 100,000 people in the army so uh, yeah. we, there's not many but, we I mean, can deploy but also it seems again like, like a lot of these things Brendan yeah one they should have seen this coming two 
Um, it seems very simple to fix. What I'm hearing uh, from various different port, ports of call is anyone who's out and about, and I'm, I'm interested in anybody who wants to, to give us further information, but if you're out and about, there might still be petrol uh, station queues. But if you impose a maximum of £30, for example, in any petrol station, then you will get more people through it, you will get fewer people taking more petrol, and more people will then be able to retire from the queues, and the queues will disappear. It seems to me to be basic... It's common sense. You know, why is the government not saying, all right, now this is, a, uh, this, is, this, is, this is something we should all be doing in every single petrol station. You shouldn't sell more than 30 quid's worth. That's the end of it. Well, that would be common sense, Mike, which is why it's not being done. Um, <laughs> because that would, be, that would be the obvious solution to the problem. Uh, also, things like not allowing uh, people to fill up loads of jerry cans on the forecourt would help the situation as well. Yes. Um, some petrol stations, individual managers have taken the decision to limit the amount of fuel people can have. Mm. Um, but I think you're right. This was an obvious issue. You know, coming out of lockdown, there was there were going to be challenges. Uh, if you shut down an economy for a year, you can't expect uh, the moment things return to normal, everything to catch up immediately. And the government should have seen this coming. Um, we are now being told that more lorries are getting through, but there are still queues uh, all around the country uh, and people are not being able to get to work. It's affecting emergency services and, of course, businesses, the lifeblood of our economy. And if this problem isn't dealt with very quickly, uh, we could really see quite a difficult winter ahead. And our very fragile recovery uh, that we've just had from the pandemic could be put at risk as people aren't able to go about their day-to-day lives. No, exactly right. I've got this text in from Archie in Bristol. He says, I've just driven around the M25 today. Police vans on every bridge. What a waste of resource. These clowns need to go into the stocks by the side of the road and pelted with tins of tomatoes by the passing drivers they've held up. I'm, I'm, I'm all right with that, Archie, until you get to the tins of tomatoes. I think just ordinary tomatoes, not in a tin. If you start throwing <laughs> tins of people, it tends to do them quite a lot of damage. But there is a problem here with, you know, we're told now that the uh, the government is going to crack down massively uh, on these protesters, these Insulate Britain protesters, but they still seem to find a way because they're so determined to create havoc. And if you live in a civilised society, it's relatively easy to create havoc. It is indeed. And let's be honest, these people are not protesters. Uh, They're just dangerous menaces. They're putting their own lives at risk, uh, running out into motorways. Uh, They're putting the lives of drivers at risk. And anyone on the motorway that may be part of the emergency services or providing an essential function to a business or another public service is being seriously delayed because of the activities of these individuals. They are achieving absolutely nothing. Uh, except building up contempt and disdain from the British people who frankly see these people as a load of layabouts. Uh, Get up off the road, get a job, do something productive uh, and stop disrupting everybody's lives. That's what I'd say. Well, I mean, government government today is saying they're going to get more injunctions, they're going to get more enforcement officers, they're going to put these people behind bars for as long as two years at a time. Let's hope they do it. Well, quite right. We've um, we've seen the government announce that they, they got the injunction the other week. But as far as I'm aware, so far, no prosecutions have taken place. If they've if they've implemented this legislation to give themselves the power to punish these people, they will get on and do it. Yeah, uh, because we we have seen on occasions on the motorways brawls and rows breaking out quite understandably because people that just want to get to work are being 
severely disrupted. Um, incidentally, Mike, it's worth saying that the Labour Party did say they were going to insulate Britain, <laughs> the home, so hopefully these idiots will get off the roads. Uh, well, yeah, well, maybe they should say, well, listen, if you've got a commitment at least from one party, then that's something. At least that should mean that they shouldn't do any more uh, protesting, really. Um, the next protest, of course, that we might see is down towards your neck of the woods is the French. The French are all kicking off uh, about the fishing rights because, again, apparently the small boating fraternity uh, said that they wanted rights to fish in our waters and we've told them they can't have them, which I think is entirely right. I spoke to Kate Hurry about this yesterday and she said if they want a fishing war, bring it on. Well, they now need to accept and understand, our friends on the continent, that Britain is an independent coastal state. Uh, we've left the European Union. Uh, we have taken back control uh, to a degree of our fishing waters. And as of 2024, I believe, uh, we will be negotiating on an annual basis uh, with the European Union uh, in terms of fishing quotas and what we allow them to have from our waters. Mm. Um, I'm afraid they will just have to lump it because this is what being an independent <laughs> sovereign country looks like. Yeah. Uh, you can't just, you know, paddle along into our part of the water and take our fish and go back and then sell them to us. Uh, we want to revive our own fishing industry and provide good jobs and training and skills to particularly people in coastal communities all around the coast of England. Their fishing fleets were decimated. Um, I mean, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like us all invading the Dordogne and, and, and shooting all their wild <laughs> boar and sticking them in the back of a lorry and driving them back to Dover, isn't it? Well, yeah, we probably wouldn't get them in, though, because customs wouldn't allow it. <laughs> oh, no, they'd all, be working, they'd all be working from home, so you'd have to queue up yeah, for we, a while. Yeah, we'd be fine. Let's, I'll meet you there at four, Mike. We'll yeah. go and get some, shall Absolutely we? Absolutely right. Um, but yeah, yeah but I mean, the, they, 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 they don't. I mean, they don't quite seem to understand that things have changed, do they? They don't seem to understand that things have changed, and this is the one of the positive aspects, actually, of, of our leaving the European Union. We can now ensure uh, that we have more sustainable fishing, and that we don't have these huge super trawlers scraping everything from the ocean uh, and damaging fish stocks. It's an opportunity uh, to revive the fishing industry in coastal towns around this country or the Kent coast, not far from where I am. Uh, it'd be great to see uh, small fishing fleets being restored. And of course, you know, the French in the past few weeks, they, they, they've taken a bit of a bashing. They, uh, they lost their nuclear deal uh, with Australia because they were too slow to get it moving. Mm. They're now being told they can't uh, get as much fish as they like. They withdrew their ambassadors and they're making a lot of noise. Part of this is all because Mr. Macron is facing a re-election campaign and he's trying to flex his muscles and look strong. But Britain's now an independent state, Mr. Macron. If you don't like it, tough. Maybe we should rename him Micron since he's lost all of his power. Yes, you know. yes well, quite right. <laughs> he, um, he, he does seem to be losing some influence. He does, there. doesn't he? Stay with us, Brendan, if you would. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're talking to Brendan Chilton from the Independent Business Network, of course. Brendan, um, a terrible story uh, coming to its end today um, with the sentencing of Wayne Cousins, the police officer who murdered Sarah Everard and who ended up down near your uh, neck of the woods, really, uh, having arrested her under false pretenses, driven her 80 miles uh, to her death before murdering her. um, And just uh, horrendous details of the story coming out yesterday. I mean, I can't imagine any judge not giving him the full-term life tariffs, which would mean he would never come out. Well, uh, we obviously have to wait to see the outcome of this case, but I think most people in this country would expect him never to leave prison uh, for what he's done. Um, it was quite harrowing to see the images of the, the individual himself using his position as a police officer mm. uh, to arrest and uh, capture uh, Emily, who was you know, then 
he did what he did to her. Um, now, I think one thing we'd need to make sure of and make sure people are you know, conscious of, this was an individual who was within the police. It is in no way representative of the police. I've seen on social media in the past 24 hours commentaries from people saying, can we trust the police? Are we safe with the police? Uh, this was one individual and is in no way reflective of our police force. Uh, it was a sick individual uh, who we hope today will have the full weight of the law brought down upon it. Yes. Uh, and certainly, hopefully, some degree of closure, uh, although it will never be fully satisfied because the family will suffer forever, but at least some degree of closure uh, for the family. Yes, I think that is the thing. When you see how the family reacted yesterday, it's quite harrowing um, and, and to see the, their, their, their statements and, and, and what they said about how ghastly this act was and how dreadful it was and how dare he take their beautiful daughter or sister away from them. And that is always the part that you don't really understand if you're not involved in the story. Yes, quite right. There's always this, we, we see the headlines, we see the commentary and the news, but we forget at the centre of all, this is a family uh, and friends as well uh, who've lost someone and who are going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives. And also uh, some sympathy too for the family of the murderer. I'm not even going to say his name, the murderer, because they've got to live with the fact uh, for the rest of their lives that a member of their family did such a terrible thing. Unfortunately, all too often uh, in this country, we do see sick individuals uh, getting into positions where they're able to abuse their victims or, or in this case, murder their victims through the offices or through the positions they hold. Uh, it's incredibly difficult. And unfortunately, you only ever really are able to uh, find out about these people once they've committed the act that they've done because yeah. uh, they're usually very very good at keeping it covered up um, but hopefully as I say this will bring some degree of closure to the family and hopefully today uh, justice will be done and that individual will never leave prison. No let's, let's hope so uh, we'll be finding out about that in the course of the next couple of hours. Just finally Brendan today's the final day of furlough uh, there's said to be uh, as much as a million people still on furlough but as of today and tonight that will come to an end what do you think the effect of that will be? Because at its height, there was, I think, nine million people on furlough. And I think we all understand why the government thought that was necessary. Um, but what's going to happen to these people? Are they all going to have jobs? Are they all going to be out of work? What? Well, first of all, I think, you know, we, mu we must accept that furlough was never a permanent position. Uh, it was a temporary measure during the uh, lockdown period. I, I personally think it should have ended a lot earlier because we are now largely back to normal. Uh, we must also remember that while there's just about a million people still on furlough, uh, there will probably be a small spike in unemployment uh, when it ends tomorrow. But there are also a million vacancies uh, within the economy, not least in the HGV driver mm. uh, industry. Um, there is no reason why these people can't quickly be retrained and reskilled to get those new jobs. Uh, and of course, if some unfortunately can't, uh, there is also welfare which will support them. But I think we'll have a small spike in unemployment, but things will largely uh, calm down and most of those people will return to work uh, within the fullness of time. Well, let's hope so. Brendan, thanks very much indeed. Very good to talk to you as ever. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Funnily enough, today is the day that furlough ends for an awful lot of people. I think as many as one million people are still left on furlough. When it was at its peak, there was about nine million. Uh, that would have been probably towards the start of the first lockdown last year. Some people have been in and out of furlough. Some people have done work uh, for some parts of the year and then gone back on furlough. A lot of HGV drivers apparently still on furlough. Let's talk to Shanta David now, Chair of Employment Law Committee at the Law Society of England and Wales and Head of Legal at Unison. Shanta, very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Very 
Thanks very much for talking to us. Um, furlough ends today. For a lot of people who are on furlough, does that mean they're going to have to go back to work tomorrow? Um, what are people being told? Well, very high to return to work. And most employers, you would hope, would have been preparing stuff at this moment. Um, but the question is, is there work for the employees to come back to? Right. Yes. And I mean, I suppose that depends on what your job is and what business you're in, right? Well, that's right. I mean, as you know, a number of people are still working from home. So there are places like sandwich shops which haven't reopened. Are those people, you know, what's going to happen? Um, can employers afford to keep their stuff on? You've just mentioned that there are approximately a million people still on furlough. And the unemployment rate has been predicted to increase very slightly. Um, but, you know, what are employers to do at this point if there are no place if they don't have um, an ability to open their um, organizations enterprises whatever it is that they're running then they will say they don't have enough work for their employees right I mean one of the um, areas I've been listening to people talking about a lot is the travel business you know if you're working for an airline or perhaps a hotel or maybe some other kind of you know travel company but nobody's really traveling still everywhere and the business is down by say 90 percent then the businesses are not going to be able to pay you, are they? Well, they're not. I mean, one thing that's open to employers is to be a bit creative. So they might want to reduce hours of work or find other ways of keeping staff because we know that there is a demand out there that uh, consumers are wanting to spend money as far as we're aware. So um, this would lead to an employer having to make changes to their employees' contracts of employment. And if employees don't want to agree to these changes, then the employer would need to give contractual notice, normally three months, and introduce these new contracts. And you would have heard about this practice called hire, uh, fire and rehire. Yeah. And, and, you know, where this is being proposed, an employer has to consult with if there's a recognised trade union or, or if there isn't one with employee representatives at this point, you know, the point of proposals to dismiss. These are redundancy provisions, you know, that must be followed, even if redundancies don't follow. But, you know, there is every possibility that redundancies will follow uh, if there is no work to come back to. And a failure to follow these processes will lead to people being able to bring employment tribunal claims to get a something called a protective award. Mm. Because I was wondering whether the furlough situation gives any extra protections to an employee uh, or indeed to an employer, because obviously it's kind of beyond the, all of their control, isn't it? Well, perhaps, but, you know, if, once the schemes come to an end uh, and if there is no work to be done, the, then the next step is either a, a reduction of hours, alternative employment, if such a thing exists within a larger organisation. Um, and what the employee needs to look out for is whether they've been fairly selected for a redundancy or whether they've been paid properly if not, you know, there are claims to be brought at the Employment Tribunal. Um, and this has to be done firstly via ACAS early conciliation. So employees, you know, can try and resolve these issues with their employer via ACAS if both parties are, are willing to do this. And if you belong to a trade union, you can ask your rep to assist you. But ultimately, if, if an employee is being told that there, there is no job available to them, they are entitled to their notice pay any kind of statutory, whether it's uh, redundancy pay or contractual redundancy pay and unused uh, annual leave. Because as you know, uh, people are allowed to carry over unused annual leave uh, of up to 20 days uh, a year if they couldn't practically use it.
Yes. The other interesting one for some people, and I've seen talking about this, is that if you are made redundant, um, at what level are your is your pay considered to be the pay at which they, they give you the, the money? So, for example, you get 20 weeks or something for redundancy. Um, but they measure it on the, the, the furloughed amount you were getting, which might be less than your real actual wage. Well, that's an argument to be had, I would um, And there isn't a clear sort of view on it. Um, and, you know, again, I would suggest it would be on, your, on what is your actual pay uh, rather than your furloughed pay. But these are arguments that are going to happen and they're going to follow. Mm. But you will know, I'm sure, and will your listeners, that there is a backlog of cases in employment tribunals with cases not being heard for 18 months to two years at the moment. Mm. Having a well-functioning employment tribunal system benefits both you know, workers and employers so that disputes can be resolved quickly and fairly. And employment tribunals have been underfunded for a, a great number of years. Mm. Uh, there was a system of fees in 2017. We won a case in the Supreme Court, highest court in the land, you know, which identified those fees uh, to be unlawful. But whilst they were in place and case numbers were falling um, because of a lack of access to justice, the government cut resources, including not replacing retired judges or staff. Mm. There has been a recruitment drive for judges in the last couple of years, but it takes about 18 months to get a judge in post. And it's less clear if admin staff have been um, that doesn't mean people shouldn't stop, you know, shouldn't seek legal remedies. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough haul at the moment and access to justice is slow. Yes. And would you expect or anticipate, Shantha, any move on, on this from the government? I mean, are they, would they consider perhaps extending some furlough in some businesses? We haven't heard anything in today's the 30th of September. It's the last day of the scheme. <laughs> You would have hoped that, I mean, previously, told a little bit in advance that the scheme was being extended. We don't have that information at the moment. Right. I mean, listen, you wouldn't you wouldn't be that surprised, though, the way this government operates, that, you know, they make, any, make one, one announcement at five o'clock and then change it at six. I mean, you know, it could happen. Not exactly. I mean, I, that, that could happen. And I think, but for the poor, you know, employees waiting to hear what's going to happen, I would suggest that they speak to their employer, ask what's happening. There'll be employers in very difficult situations mm. as well. Perhaps they can't keep them now, but maybe in two, three months' time, they'll want them back, you know. So there, there is a conversation to be had. And for that, you know, seek help from your trade union rep if you belong to a trade union or seek help from an employment law solicitor because, you know, that might be where people are headed, although nobody wants to do that. No, sure. Shantha, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. Shantha David, the head of legal at Unison, uh, also chair of the Employment Law Committee at the Law Society of England and Wales. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And let us say a very good afternoon to Anne Widdicombe. and thanks for joining us. Afternoon. Thank you very much. We may have to uh, depart from you at any given moment if this sentencing sure. comes through. Yeah. But obviously, um, I would be surprised, as I'm, I'm sure you would be, uh, if Brian Cousins does not get a full life tariff in this case. It's very much a matter uh, for the judge to take all factors into account. Um, it's the sort of case which could attract uh, a whole life sentence, but may not necessarily do so. Uh, and until we've heard the judge's uh, reasons and his uh, sentencing decision, 
really it's quite difficult to comment at this stage. Sure. What's your view generally, though, Anne, of what the police should have done better? Because they've been quite heavily criticised. This is a man who clearly had problems um, with women, a man who had clearly in the past been involved in various episodes of flashing, um, uh, of what you might call lewd behaviour at the very least. And while you wouldn't necessarily expect somebody like that to turn into a brutal murderer, surely you would have expected the police to have done something about those reports? Well, I think the one that came immediately before the murder, probably they just hadn't had time, but there was one before that. Uh, and it does seem a bit odd, given that this is a policeman, that, that, it, that it wasn't taken rather more seriously. Yeah. Uh, in general, though, I think you have to keep your head and you have to say, look, there are rotten apples in every barrel. You know, the fact that this officer uh, has, has proved to have done something so horrendous doesn't actually reflect uh, on the uh, uh, the police as a whole. I mean, they will be shattered by it. Yes, uh, of course. Is horrified. They'll be shattered by it, particularly those who worked with him, who knew him as a mate, you know. Um, it, it, it is very difficult to comprehend. Yes, it really is. So I take it you're not one of those then who thinks that this is another example of misogyny, the problem in society with men uh, who don't understand how to treat women and men who are uh, able to get away with harming women, um, which is an argument which is often made when these kinds of things happen. I mean, I don't think that's right. Um, I'm assuming you don't either. No. I mean, I, I think very straightforwardly that as long as there is evil in this world, uh, both men and women are going to fall victim uh, uh, to that evil. Uh, yes. And that there is nothing that you can do. There is no one action or even a combination of actions that you can take that is going to eliminate uh, the risk uh, to women at night. There just isn't such an action. We do have to bring common sense, proportionality, and above all, precautions uh, to this. Now, this lady was on a perfectly well-lit street. You know, it's, it's difficult to imagine what else she could have done. And she, she wasn't walking through a dark park. She was in a well-lit street when uh, this man approached her and, and carried out a false arrest. Uh, and uh, But women should... Uh, be very, very careful. I'm not saying there was something more she could have done, but women should, in general, take as much care of themselves as they take of their handbags. Right. Think well, about that. Women will take great care of their handbags, and then they'll put themselves in positions of danger. I can tell you, Anne, as we speak, um, it looks as though Wayne Cousins has been uh, sentenced to a whole life tariff. So tell us what you think of that. Um, as I say, it was um, a perfectly likely option, though not a foregone conclusion, because if he'd been sentenced for 30 years, for example, he would have been a very old man if he came out. I mean, what I think people don't understand is if you get a life sentence and you're sentenced to 30 years, doesn't mean you come out on the 30th year. Uh, it means you're reassessed uh, at 30 years. Right. Uh, so he would have been a very, very old man. So it was always possible that the judge might go down that route. But I think this was always the more likely outcome because the premeditation was so clear. This was not a man who suddenly lost his head on seeing a pretty girl. This was a man who planned it all out. And I think that probably when we hear the judge's remarks will have been the deciding factor. Yes, I think so, because listening yesterday to some of the testimony was was quite harrowing, really, in terms of the the detail that he put into all of the things that he did. It was a ghastly and horrific crime, which, which would have taken quite a bit of planning. Yes, and at any time during that planning process, he could have stopped at any time. And that is the point about premeditation. It is that you have time to stop and you carry it through. And this was so carefully planned, but the man was also an idiot. I mean, a policeman of all people should have realised that just about everything we do these days is on camera somewhere. Mm. 
and, and yet so, he, he appears to have been oblivious of that. I, <laughs> I'm absolutely right. Uh, so just a few moments ago, as we say, uh, the sentencing was handed down. Ross Powell is here uh, from Talk Radio's news department. Ross, uh, tell us. Yeah, Mike. Well, uh, as you said, the whole life term of the kidnap, rape and murder of Sarah Everard handed down to Wayne Cousins. I don't think this was really much of a shock. I mean, the whole life orders, they're the most severe punishments available in the UK criminal justice system. They're reserved for those who commit the most serious offences. There's only 60 criminals currently serving whole life orders in the UK, and they're the people that will never be considered for release. These include people like Michael Adebolajo, one of Fusilier Lee Rigby's killers, mm. Levi Belfield, who's actually serving two whole life sentences for his crimes, and Thomas Mayer, who killed the MP Joe Cox. So only on exceptional compassionate grounds will these people ever be uh, considered for release. It's a crime, you know, which we've said over the last few days has shocked the whole nation. And we heard yesterday at the Old Bailey, didn't we, some of the impact statements from the family, Sarah Everard's mother Susan told the court uh, she was outraged that Wayne Cousins masqueraded as a policeman in order to get what he wanted. And that's kind of one of the most you know, sickening mm. things about this, that he used his position uh, to get what he wanted. Her father, Jeremy, told Wayne Cousins in court he could never forgive him for what he'd done and demanded the former officer look at him as he was reading the statements. And Sarah's sister Katie telling Wayne Cousins that he was a monster and told him he had treated Sarah as if she was nothing, placing more emphasis on satisfying his sick perversion. So, you know, it's the outcome that I think we expected. And uh, I'm sure throughout the day we're going to hear more comments on, you know, the other issues which mm. have been raised by this case and all the case, also the case of Sabina Nessa. The suspect for that uh, case was also in the Old Bailey mm. today uh, for a hearing, okay. the issue around women's safety on the streets, etc. So we'll continue to react to it throughout the day on Talk Radio. Thank you very much indeed, Ross Powell, though, with the latest news that uh, Sarah Everard's killer has been jailed for life. He will die uh, in jail. He has been given a full life tariff. We're talking to Anne Whittacombe. Um, Anne, um, is there a, um, a, a sort of a, a point of, um, shall we say, concentration and a point of self-reflection now for the police in terms of what they do about this? Because several people have said to me this morning... Um, that because of what he did, because of Wayne Cousins' actions and the way that he used his position to arrest this young woman um, and get her into a car in the first place, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, what do we do now if we're approached by a police officer? Well, I think one should keep a sense of proportion. As I say, there are bad apples in every barrel. Uh, you know, you have teachers who abuse children. You have uh, renegade priests. You, you have bad apples everywhere. I mean, families too, of course. Uh, so I think one should keep a sense of proportion. Um, this was a particularly cynical and premeditated uh, crime uh, in which he did indeed use his position as a police officer. But how many other such instances can you name? And the answer is this was rare. We all pray it was a one-off, but mm. it was certainly rare. Yeah. If you're approached by a police officer, my advice to the public would be as long as it is a police officer, trust him. Yes. I mean, I think many people have also pointed out that generally speaking, police officers go around in twos. And there's a reason for that. It's so that you can know that they are genuinely police officers and also the fact that they can uh, also have two people who can uh, explain what may or may not have then happened. Yes, and it's easy to say in retrospect, you know, that perhaps uh, Sarah should have been a, a bit more alert. But what was she to do? She was confronted with a policeman with a warrant card. Yes. Uh, there were COVID laws, which she was allegedly breaking. What was she supposed to think or right. do? 
No, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, I don't. I don't think you can in any way suggest that she should have done something else because it was his um, absolutely horrific kind of deception that caused her to get into the car. And as you I say, think what I was trying to say was, you know, the fact that he was on his own um, would not necessarily uh, have alerted people. But no. in general, you can expect what you say is right. In general, you can expect police officers to be in twos. Yes, I think so. Let's talk a bit about this idea from Dominic Raab, because you've worked in the justice system uh, yourself, Anne. He thinks it's a good idea that because we're so short of workers, which is perhaps another story we should discuss, yeah. uh, that yeah. we should hire prisoners uh, to go on sort of day release and, and, go and, and go to work for the day. What do you think of that? Well, as I read what he's saying is um, the prisoners we should be using are those who've just been released and will probably be finding it difficult to get work because they have a criminal record. Um, and those who are already on day release, well, yes. let's, let's employ them gainfully. Mm. Um, and yes, uh, I'm all in favour of that. But I ask a bigger question, Mike, which is this. If we've got such a huge shortage of workers in this country, and it appears we have, why on earth is anybody on the dole? Well, <laughs> I mean, getting aside physical limitations, why is anybody on the dole? Well, this is a question I put to, uh, to my audience a little bit earlier, Anne, because I'm also similarly puzzled. If we've got 1.3 million people supposedly unemployed... Yeah. And there are vacancies for things I'm like HGV drivers, uh, jobs which are being offered at around £50,000 a year. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Well, I think as far as the HGV drivers go, that's a question of qualifications. But you don't need a qualification to pick fruit. Yeah. You know, you don't need a, a qualification to pack stuff. You don't need qualifications for an awful lot of the jobs which are now vacant. Even in the hospitality trade, a very quick, swift training uh, uh, will help to get you started. So I really don't see uh, why we have so many people on the dole yeah. and at the same time so many um, vacancies without requiring particular qualifications. Truck driver shortage is a bit different. Yeah. Well, we hear all the time, though, don't we, that the benefits system has become very complicated. An awful lot of people who are on benefits are actually working as well. So they're not making enough money. And we have this bizarre system where we top up their wages with taxpayer funded benefits, which I think is a mistake anyway. Um, but there clearly are people unemployed who don't have work to do. Um, who surely, as you say, should do it. Because I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a couple of pig farmers up north who were saying they were going to have to slaughter a load of pigs because the previous workers that they had were from the European Union and they couldn't find anybody in Britain to do the job um, of butchering the pigs. I found that extraordinary. Well, I don't think I'd very much like to butcher pigs. I, 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 well, luckily <laughs> you have other talents, Anne. You know, there's no need for you to do that. Um, but, I, but I think in general... Um, where somebody is able to do a job and is physically competent to do the job, uh, then I think that um, the state shouldn't take no for an answer. And the problem is that people can still say no. Yes. But I mean, on a broader question, why do you think there is this sort of shortage? Because we're told it's not just in Britain, that it's all over the world, that we have a sort of shortage of, of manpower, stroke woman power. Uh, we have a shortage of uh, people moving things around. We're told that there could be a problem at Christmas. You know, I know that we get told that every year and it doesn't always come true. But there does seem to be a general kind of, and I think it's COVID-inspired uh, nonsense going on, where people are not operating as they normally should be operating. I think a lot of things uh, have come together. Uh, with the truck drivers, it's, you know, 47,000 delayed tests um, has really exacerbated the problem hugely. And you do have to ask, uh, what the Ministry of Transport was thinking of uh, in just allowing that to uh, to pile up, COVID or no COVID. Mm. Um, but then something else is happening. Um, as a result of furlough, 
people reassess what they were doing. And I know people, and, and, and so it's a microcosm of what's going on in general. And I think it's happening everywhere, in Europe and everywhere. Yes. Uh, people who didn't want to be at home saw, for example, that construction was still working. So they said, fine, right, well, we go off and work in construction. Mm. I know a chef who did just that. He's not going back to chefing. Right. So there's a gap there in the hospitality trade where he was. Um, but in normal circumstances, he would never have dreamt of doing that. And I think COVID will have caused a lot of people to make decisions about where they live, um, whether they want to work from home, whether they want to do the job they were already doing or switch to another. Mm. And, and there is all this going on in the economy. And it's going to take a while to settle. Yes, because today, for example, it's the final day of furlough, supposedly. So it could be that potentially tomorrow there'll be a few hundred thousand people unemployed. Because I was saying to somebody earlier, if you're in the travel business and you're you're running an airline and you've been furloughing people, you're still not really up to full capacity. You might not have a job for that person. No, I think that probably will happen in a number of cases. But in general, people have had a long time to plan for this moment, both employers uh, and employed. Uh, and uh, it shouldn't come as a nasty shock. We've known for a very long time now that furlough was due to end, mm. uh, uh, as it must. It, it's a temporary measure, as should the £20 uplift um, in, in uh, universal credit. Uh, you've got to, to say that when something is temporary and has been uh, subsidised at huge cost by the taxpayer, when it comes to an end, it is at an end, and we've all known it was coming, and people should have prepared for this moment. I think so. Uh, and finally, Keir Starmer, um, perhaps one of the most boring conference speeches I think I've ever seen. Um, apparently, he's now come out and said he thinks the next James Bond should be female. Well, a man's a complete idiot. Look, <laughs> James Bond, well, I'm sorry, but that's what I think. James Bond is fun. It's stylized masculinity. It's not toxic. It's stylized. We know what we're going to get when we go to the cinema. We're going to get this indestructible character and we're going to get unbelievable car chases and a lot of nonsense from Pew about all his gadgets. It's fun. Can't we be allowed to enjoy ourselves? Yes. Well, I've got some breaking news for Keir Starmer. You know, guess what? James Bond is actually a fictional character. He's not really killing anybody either. Indeed. Indeed. And I mean, as I say, it's just fun. We should be allowed to enjoy ourselves. And the plague of our society at the moment is isms. Yes. You know, sexism, racism, it's all isms, and they look for isms everywhere uh, where they're not intended. I don't think Ian Fleming was full of isms. I think he devised a jolly good character, which has brought a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. My only objection is that Judy Dench is no longer M. Yes, I she was M ever. She was very good, wasn't she? But but there we are. We had to we had to move with the times. Apparently, apparently, being um, sort of equality or opportunity for women is no longer a thing. It's going to be beyond that now. But Anne, this is great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed, Anne Whittaker, former Conservative MP, former Brexit Party MEP as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk to James Withers now, Chief Executive of Scotland Food and Drink, because this morning we're reading yet again um, that this could just be the tip of the iceberg. This could just be the beginning. You know, forget about the HGV uh, drivers crisis think about the container crisis think about the fact that Christmas is coming and we might run out of everything now I'm generally speaking a bit optimistic about this I'm not a pessimist I'm not going to tell you that we should all be you know hunkering down and buying 55,000 cans of Heinz spaghetti just in case and putting them all in the basement no let's find out from James what's really going on James very good uh, afternoon to you hi Mike there is a bit of a sort of whiff of um, fear in the air, isn't there? Lots of people are saying lots of terrible things might happen. And in my experience, a lot of the time when we say terrible things might happen, it's never quite as bad as we're told it might be. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a prophet of, of doom, but, but there's trouble ahead. <laughs> I do, th- I do think there's trouble ahead, and the frustrating thing is we've been warning about this for for a wee while. So a lot of focus has been on drivers, and I get that we mm. need them. They're the wheels. Pretty much everything in this country is trucked in some form. Um, but the shortages that I'm seeing, certainly in the food and drink industry, are on farm. Farmers need people to. Uh, pick vegetables, get them packed. They're in food manufacturing facilities. They're definitely in retailers as well. We're seeing restaurants and hotels not being able to do lunch services so they can't find staff. So there's more pressure now on our food supply chain than at any time I've seen it, including in the height of the COVID pandemic. Mm. I mean, a lot of the stuff I'm reading this morning is coming from warnings uh, from union leaders who were saying that some of the problem is also been created by COVID because there are some places like ports, for example, you know, even shipping companies where not everybody's back to work normally as it were so they're not really working at high at top speed yeah and you mentioned containers as well mike earlier on and that's one of the problems when the world kind of stopped and went into hibernation and covid mm. containers are in the wrong place yeah. it could take a year or 18 months to get them back, get that flow back and certainly if you're a business that exports at the moment and you're trying to find a container to get your goods from uk to china the cost might have gone from about two thousand three thousand dollars up to 15 16 17 000. so there's an enormous thing happening at the moment, an earthquake, and we're struggling for solutions just now. Mm. And as far as what, what does that mean for us, all of us planning for Christmas, we're going to have to plan really carefully because we've got gaps on supermarket shelves at the moment and nothing that's been done so far is going to make that situation any better. Yeah, and why is it happening now, James? I mean, why wasn't it happening, I don't know, two months ago? So what you have in the summertime is a bit of a lull in the food industry. So it's a bit of a a drop off in the normal level of sales. And what starts from now right through to Christmas, if you look at any of the graphs on food sales in the UK, they start to rise. They go up and up and up and we have this enormous spike at Christmas. The problem with the starting point we've got now is that the amount of stocks we've got in shops, in warehouses is lowest since records began. Mm. So you put a spike in sales against a lack of product that's actually there and available and you get into this kind of problem. COVID and the pandemic is a big part of this, Mm. but Brexit is an enormous complicating, accelerating factor for this. Over a million people went home during the COVID pandemic to many European Union countries. We've got an immigration system that makes it really, really difficult for them to come back. And many of those people view our immigration system as now hostile to them. So trying to get them back... Well, we also got about three and and a half million people stayed though, James. We do, but we've got some real structural unemployment issues. So if you've got a hotel in Fort William that needs staff and you're unemployed in Edinburgh, you're generally not moving. And I've spoken to, give you one example, one business I spoke to, they're in the Highlands of Scotland. They're 200 staff short. That area is pretty much an area of full employment. They've tried busing people from Aberdeen, busing people from Inverness, 100 miles away, and they just can't make it work and they've already written off their christmas sales and they're now worried about what happens next year so there's a longer term issue but isn't that also an issue of how much they're paying james as well because we're also hearing from people who say that one of the reasons why wages are going up in certain industries now is that the, the, the cheaper labor has gone and that's a good thing for the people who want the jobs here so I think we all want to get to this kind of high-wage, high-skilled economy that we've heard the Prime Minister talking about. But that will take time. Now, all the businesses I've spoken to, those that are struggling for staff in the Scottish food industry, are paying above the national living wage. Not above national minimum wage, but national living wage. It's about £9.50 an hour outside of London, about £10.50 an hour inside London. And the wage rates are going through the roof. Now, if you're a business in Fife, 
you're competing with a massive Amazon depot that's trying to get staff into their uh, warehouse to get stuff boxed and packed and sent out for Christmas. And literally every time the hourly rate goes up 50p, Amazon put it up a bit more. So there's a battle going on for a finite workforce. Mm. Just employing locals is fine, but they've got to be there in the first place. And in large parts of the UK, they're not. Yes. No, I take that point. And that's always been structurally a problem that Britain has had because, for example, I lived in America for 10 years. People thought nothing of picking up their entire family and moving across the, yeah. con- the, the continent to move from, say, Boston to, to Dallas if there was a good job there to be had. And we've just, done, we've just never had that culture, have we? No, it's easier to get someone to move from Warsaw to Wigton in the south of Scotland <laughs> than it is to get them to move from Edinburgh yeah, I know. to the well, south of Scotland. They don't even so... like going to Glasgow, do they, for the night? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in Edinburgh, so I'm signed up to the, the fear of heading all the west to Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm lucky enough to have lived in both places, so I can see both sides of the argument. <laughs> so what's the answer then, James? Because, what I mean, I think in the short term, I can see why you might say, well, let's bring some more European Union workers back in. But in the end, that will just depress the, the wages, won't it? Well, I don't think it'll depress the wages if you don't have uh, a workforce here locally that's able to take these jobs. To be honest with you, Mike, I think we're out of options in terms of trying to really solve this problem for Christmas Mm. and 5,000 visas for drivers and 5,500 visas for poultry workers for three months. And by the way, it'll be less than three months by the time they actually get the scheme up and running. I can't see that scratching the surface of the Mm. problem, particularly when you've got a group of people who probably feel unwelcome. We're now saying any chance you can come back to the UK and help us save Christmas, after which you're unwelcome again. I don't think that's right. No, I don't think people would feel unwelcome. And if they did, they wouldn't come. Simple as that. I mean, there's no reason to to suggest that. What I would say, though, uh, is if people in this country don't want to do, say, for example, the butchering of pigs, then they're never going to want to do it. So how's that going to work? I mean, if you're running a pig farm and you can't pay people enough money to do that job and you can't find people in your own country who want to do that job, then maybe you shouldn't be running that business. Well, firstly, don't underestimate the impact of the Brexit debate driven a lot by immigration on the people who had, from the EU, who had lived here, worked here and been in our communities. It had a massively negative impact on them. So I don't agree is, with that. I, don't, well, I honestly don't agree with that, James. I don't, I, all the people who wanted to stay in this country stayed. A lot of them stay, but a lot of them have gone home. A million, over a million yeah. EU workers have headed home over the last wee while. And even if they wanted to come back, they can't come back. Now, there's other factors. The economies in Eastern European countries are improving, so there's not that same there's draw also shortages of, There's shortages of labour in all European countries, though. There is, but I don't see supermarkets in Paris running short of product. I don't see people well, I don't queuing see supermarkets units in London. Fuel. I don't see supermarkets in London running out of product. I just keep hearing it on the media, but I don't actually see it when I go into the shops. There are, there are, gap, there are absolutely gaps on shelves. And I'm not going to tell you we're going to starve in the UK and there's going to be martial law and we're going to be riots over food. But we've got a real strain on the food system. And particularly, it'll be around some of the more processed products. So whole chickens, fine. You know, you, you slaughter, you process, you put it in a bag. Things like pigs in blankets, a staple at my Christmas dinner, will be maybe for yours and lots of other people, that takes more processing, takes more labour. If you're gluten-free... I make it myself. Glu- oh, do you? Well, if, well, you may be sat on the solution for the entire UK food industry if we all start processing... Uh, well, there you processing go. There you go. There we found, I, knew, I knew we'd find a solution. James, listen, I've got to run. I've got some wine to taste, uh, which is not in short supply, coming from Spain. James Withers there. Thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive of Scotland Food and Drink. Make your own pigs in blankets. Stop complaining. Get on with it. 